It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Hello, welcome to New Scientist Weekly, the podcast with all the most compelling and noteworthy and mind-boggling science news in the world. Yes, we do actually have all of those things this week, definitely. Uh, I'm Rowan Hooper. I'm our podcast editor. And I'm Tiffany O'Callaghan. I'm our features editor. Returning to the podcast today is staff writer Michael LePage, and also welcome back science writer Joe Marchant. Hi, both. Hello. Hello. Coming up this week, we have the latest COVID vaccination goings on. We have fascinating news on hibernation and how it seems to actually prevent aging. And we have a brilliant fungal life form of the week. <laughs> yeah, that's a, it's a great one. Uh, it's a real also, fun guy. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> it is. <laughs> we've also got a chat with marine biologist Helen Scales about the deep ocean. And we're going to be talking with Joe about the 2,000-year-old Antikythera mechanism, which is sometimes called the world's first computer. Before that, though, time to quickly remind you that you can get 20% off a subscription to New Scientist. Go to newscientist.com slash pod20 to subscribe and get your discount. And also, after listening to this, do go and listen to our sister podcast, Escape Pod, to really get away from it all. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts. But let's start with the latest on COVID. As of today, March 18th, we've had almost 2.7 million deaths globally from coronavirus and 120 million confirmed cases. And those are low estimates. There will likely be many more than that. The true number is far higher. But vaccines really are starting to change the picture. Isn't that right, Michael? Yes, we've seen cases falling sharply in Israel a month after it lifted its lockdown, even though the more transmissible UK variant now dominates there. And this, of course, is happening because most adults in Israel have now been vaccinated. And all the signs are that once most people in Europe and North America are vaccinated, we'll see the same thing happening there, too. So this is this is the good news. This is the, the outlook. OK, so then there's bad news. Yes, the bad news is that what we've seen in many parts of Europe and the US is an exponential rise in the UK variant. It's kind of been invisible because cases due to the older variants have been falling. But now in lots of countries, we're starting to see overall case numbers rise again, including France, Italy and Germany. So the uptick we're seeing in those countries is basically because of the rise of the UK variant B117 over there. Exactly. This is coming at a dangerous time because lots of countries are wanting to ease restrictions or even have ease restrictions. And if that's done too fast before people are vaccinated, we could see a massive third wave with lots more deaths in many countries. It could even happen here in the UK. That's why it's especially important to vaccinate as many people as soon as possible, which, of course, why we need the AstraZeneca vaccine. 
Yeah, which is why it's been so frustrating that there's been um, a pause in Europe uh, in the use of the AstraZeneca vaccine. Yes. And uh, think of it this way. It's it's like we're in a plane that's landing on a, after a long flight and everyone's really keen to get off. But we've got to wait until the plane's actually on the ground before we start undoing our seatbelts and taking our luggage down or people could get hurt. Uh, yeah, I was thinking about that. And it's like to take this further, you know, you, you're waiting for your luggage at the carousel and you can see your family waiting on the other side of, of the customs desk. But you're, you're not allowed. We're not allowed to get go through it yet just quite yet and going through and hug them. So it's really tantalisingly close, you know, where we are, but we can't relax yet. Otherwise, people are going to die, basically. There's no other way of putting it. But what would you say to people who are worrying about the AstraZeneca vaccine? And that's particularly because of the concerns about blood clots. There's no evidence that it causes blood clots at a higher rate than you'd expect in the population anyway. I think the most convincing thing I can say is I put my money where my mouth is and went ahead and got the AstraZeneca vaccine this weekend. Yeah. And I'd recommend everyone do the same. It's not just about protecting yourself. It's about protecting your family and your friends and, and everyone you come into contact with. Yeah, uh, well, I'm getting my vaccine uh, straight after this podcast, actually. I don't know which one I'm getting yet, but I'll report back. Fantastic. Now it's time for Life Form of the Week. And this week we have a mushroom. Yeah. Yeah, we've not had a mush- uh, We've not had a fungus before as Life Form of the Week, I don't think. Uh, and that's a terrible oversight, which we will make up for today. Uh, it's a bracket fungus. Uh, those are the ones you've seen growing out the sides of trees. You know, those ones. Uh, this is called Ganoderma aplanatum. And it's a lovely organism in its own right. Um, but it's in the news this week because it's been used to make floorboards that generate electricity when you step on them. So, you know, just by walking on the floor, you could generate clean energy. Uh, so they're saying one day this could lead to energy ballrooms. That is so cool. So how does it work? Right. So, uh, as you know, fungi grow by sending their hyphae out into the world looking for food to grow into. Actually, I told this to my daughter the other day that we eat by putting food into our bodies, but fungi eat by putting their bodies into food. <laughs> yeah, she, you can imagine how she just gave me a withering stare. <laughs> <laughs> um, so if you allow this species to grow into floorboards for a few weeks, it changes the internal structure of the wood to make it more compressible. So it's essentially sort of rotting the wood, right? Yeah, yeah, it's rotting the wood just enough to give it this bounce. It decreases its density of the wood. It gives a bounce when you step on it. Uh, and this produces electricity through the piezoelectric effect. And now what scientists have managed to do is get the wood to just the right state that it compresses enough to generate electricity, but it still retains its strength. And they've rigged up this bit of decaying wood uh, to an LED and then covered it with an, a wooden veneer and made a, an energy floor. And it generates power when you stand on it power the led so isn't that amazing that is amazing like yeah you could go to a wedding and you could power the like disco lights yeah. by dancing on the floor yeah um so, so is that is that ultimately where they're going with this yeah they are going with uh, wedding <laughs> wedding venues <laughs> um yeah they are basically that sort of thing um and we've you know we've been talking about wood um singing the praises of wood in construction for a while now um we'll put a link in the show notes to a feature we had uh, last year i think it was and it's all going into the idea of having buildings made from wood rather than concrete and steel uh, and then you'd have a much lower carbon footprint and make more sustainable buildings 
And with this fungus, you could generate electricity at the same time. So, yeah, it's an amazing story. But there's a, obviously, as always, there's a long way to go. Um, you know, in this experiment, the fungus was grown in balsa wood, which is already very low density, uh, but it's really promising. Time out, time to tell you about today's sponsor, the Ryman Prize. Now, New Zealand is best known for its spectacular landscapes and its rugby and sailing teams, and more recently, its best-in-class efforts at eliminating COVID-19. But what you probably didn't know is that New Zealand is also a world leader in its model of care for its ageing population, and it's home to one of the world's largest and most significant health prizes. That's the Ryman Prize, which is awarded each year by the Prime Minister of New Zealand. It's a £130,000 cash prize for the best discovery, development, advance or achievement anywhere in the world that enhances the quality of life for older people. As well as the most obvious threat to older people currently, COVID-19, the over 70 population is up against a long list of chronic diseases, including Alzheimer's, dementia, Parkinson's disease and diabetes. But research into chronic health issues is poorly funded. The Ryman Prize aims to help fix this by finding the best and brightest in the world and rewarding them for their efforts. Last year's Ryman Prize was won by world-leading cognitive impairment, Alzheimer's and dementia researcher Professor Maya Kivapelto of the Karolinska Institute in Stockholm. Former winners include Gabby Hollows, Professor Peter St. George Hislop and robotics pioneer Professor Takanori Shibata. Entries for this year's Ryman Prize are now open. If you think you've got what it takes to win the prize, go to RymanPrize.com for more information. Next up, it's been a big week in Marmot hibernation news. (laughs) (laughs) How many times are you going to say that in your life? (laughs) It has been a big week in Marmot hibernation news. Uh, They're a sort of ground squirrel that you get in, in North America. And uh, biologists studying them have found something very interesting that happens during their hibernation. And Michael, you've been reporting on this story. Yes. So to explain why we should care about marmots, I've heard more than one person say they would happily hibernate through the pandemic. (laughs) But but what if you kept ageing when you were hibernating? Would you still want to hibernate for a year if it was a year of your life gone? Yeah, actually, I would. <laughs> I, would have, I skipped that last year. <laughs> no, no, I wouldn't. Anyway, the, the answer to this question might actually be important for space exploration. So NASA is funding research into inducing hibernation in people for long distance space travel. And obviously, it's important to know whether they're going to age during that. So do animals that hibernate live longer? They do tend to live longer than other animals of a similar size, but we don't know whether this is just because they're not out there getting caught by predators when they're hibernating. But now we have evidence that a key sign of ageing slows during hibernation. So this study was of yellow-bellied marmots, which hibernate for up to eight months a year, dropping their body temperature as low as five degrees Celsius. Wow, eight months, yellow bellies. Eight months they, uh, (laughs) they hibernate for. Yes, that would definitely get you through a lockdown, wouldn't it? Yeah. Anyway, as part of a bigger study, uh, biologists have been taking blood samples for years now to check on their epigenetic age. Okay, and remind us what that is. So basically, over time, cells stick these chemical labels onto the DNA inside them. And these are an indication of aging because they usually accumulate steadily over an animal's lifetime. But what we saw in the marmots uh, was a cyclical pattern where the changes are only occurring in the summer and not in the winter. Does that mean that so basically aging is put on hold when they're hibernating? That's the implication. These epigenetic changes are just one aspect of aging. But when you put this study together with all the previous ones, 
it makes the case for aging slowing down during hibernation a lot stronger. And researchers think this is probably true for all animals that hibernate. So I love that. Um, I love the concept. But, you know, presumably we are quite different to marmots um, and other hibernating animals in many ways. So how likely is it that we're going to be able to mimic this in humans? Well, we're making surprising progress. So in 2019, trauma surgeons in the US began experimenting with cooling down people who've been severely injured to try and put them in their kind of stasis and buy more time for treating their injuries. And then there was another really exciting development last year when two separate teams found a kind of switch in the brains of mice that triggers hibernation. And of course, mice don't usually hibernate. So we don't we don't know whether we can make people hibernate yet, but it's it's we're making a surprising amount of progress, I'd say. Okay, so you mentioned space travel, um, but hibernation really only becomes a thing when you need to go quite far, right? That that's true, but it could be the only way that we humans will ever get to travel beyond Mars. And the issue isn't just aging. So radiation is a, a huge problem on long space journeys, and a lot of studies have shown that hibernating animals suffer less radiation damage. Bring it on. Next up, we've got news on, well, it's the most wondrous artefact of the ancient world, or definitely one of them. It's the 2,000-year-old Antikythera mechanism, which, as I said before, it's often described as the world's first computer. Uh, So to talk about this, we're joined by science writer Joe Marchant. Uh, Joe wrote a book about the Antikythera mechanism, Decoding the Heavens, And Joe's new book, The Human Cosmos, touches on lots of similar themes about how how we relate to the stars. Hello, Joe, again. Hi. Hi. Hi, Joe. Thanks for coming in. Um, For those who don't know, can you just give us a bit of a primer about what the Antikythera mechanism is? Yeah, so it's a sophisticated bronze clockwork device. It's from ancient Greece around the first century BC, uh, retrieved from a shipwreck in 1901. And it's really like nothing else that we know from the ancient world. There's nothing close to this sophistication for at least a thousand years afterwards. So there's more than 30 little cogs or gear wheels inside. It's got precisely marked dials, pointers, it's covered in inscriptions, But it came up really battered in pieces. So it's taken researchers more than a century uh, using imaging techniques to look inside the fragments to work out what it was. And we now know it was essentially a mechanical model of the cosmos. So a kind of wooden box about a foot high turned by a handle on the side so you could go forwards and backwards in time. And then that incorporated several calendars, predicted eclipses and showed the movements of the sun, moon and planets in the sky. So, yeah, pretty amazing thing. It is. Um, I remember... When after I read your book, Joe, and the next time I was in Athens, I went to see the Antikythera mechanism in the museum there, and mm. just yeah, it's just amazing thing to see, and wow, yeah, it blew blew me away. Uh, yeah, so as you say, there's been decades of work going into it, um, and you know, different rival groups putting forward explanations for how it works. So, what's the new? What's the latest? What's the new work about? Right. So the new work is to do with how the device showed the planets in particular. So we know from inscriptions that it did show the motions of the planets through the sky. There was a big circular dial on the front, which was marked with 365 days of the year, 360 degrees of the zodiac. But the actual gearing for the planets is missing. So there's been a lot of argument about how they actually did it particularly because the planets have got quite a complicated motion in the sky. So they go backwards and forwards as we look at them. 
Uh, and that's because they're orbiting the sun at the same time that we are. And, and the Greeks obviously didn't know that. So they explained that motion with these little kind of loop the loop circles that they called epicycles. So it had previously been suggested that the mechanism like, was modeling this, like using little wheels riding around on bigger wheels. And then that would drive pointers for the planets that would go backwards and forwards around the dial. And people have been skeptical about that. But in inscriptions read a few years ago, um, that is describing what the front display is showing, there are numbers for a couple of the planets, Venus and Saturn, that come from exactly the kind of mathematical models that you would need to work out those cycles. Uh, so now uh, a team from UCL, uh, they've come up with like a new gearing scheme for how those equations could have been calculated mechanically, um, but also a new design for how the planet's motion could have been displayed. So. Previously, people had thought about pointers kind of moving around a dial like hands on a clock. So you'd have a pointer for each planet. Um, but now the new reconstructions got this really neat sort of series of concentric bronze rings on the front. So they're each rotating around. There's one for each planet with a little semi-precious stone or gem on each one that's showing you the particular position of the planet in its orbit. So it's really hard to prove that this is definitely how the mechanism works, but it's a really uh, clever model and looks quite different from anything that we've had before on this. So if this new model is right, does it change our understanding of kind of what the mechanism was used for or, or what it could do? It's more to do with just how it works, what kind of techniques were the Greeks using. Um, so in terms of what the machine could actually do, you've still got the idea of this big dial on the front and you're turning the handle and then you'd, rather than pointers, you'd see concentric rings all turning at different speeds, backwards and forwards, showing you sun, moon and planets through the sky, um, probably inscriptions giving information about uh, what the stars are rising and setting at different times of year. And then on the back, um, there's still this idea that there were two spiral dials, one showing a calendar, the other one showing um, predicted eclipses. So I kind of think of it as a almost like an ancient iPad, really, a box that you've got all these different <laughs> apps or functions, all these different dials that are giving you everything, really, that was known about the cosmos at the time. And I just wanted to say as well that the Antikythera mechanism, it's more, though, than just a clever piece of technology. Um, the reason that I think it was so significant is because it represents really the beginnings of an idea that has been crucial for science, which is seeing the universe as a machine, this idea of using this machine to model the cosmos. So rather than the universe being this sort of chaotic plaything of the gods, people are starting to see it now, you can see in this device, as a mechanism that works according to rules, really, that we can discover, understand, predict. And that's the key idea that has really inspired scientific advance ever since. And you've looked at that a bit more in, in your new book, The Human Cosmos, haven't you? Yeah. So people since our earliest ancestors have been trying to understand you know, what the cosmos is, how it works. And so what I look at in the book is how that sort of quest has been important in shaping not just our astronomy and science, but pretty much every area of human society from religion, timekeeping to art and politics We've got um, cave paintings from the Paleolithic that seem to represent the stars. Later on, astronomical observations were crucial to the first clocks, to mapping the Earth, allowing sailors to navigate and explore the planets. Um, one of my favourite examples is how models of the cosmos have helped to shape politics. So Newton's universal laws of motion, for example, you know, he said that the same physical laws govern everything in the cosmos, from particles to planets. 
And that caused people to ask, well, shouldn't that apply to people as well? Shouldn't everyone from commoners to kings have to obey the same laws? And that was really important in inspiring ideas about democracy and human rights. And that helped ultimately to trigger the revolutions in America and France. So when we're talking about the Antikythera mechanism, I think we shouldn't be surprised that, you know, this unique piece of technology turns out to be to do with the heavens, because it's really just part of this much bigger story of humanity being inspired by the stars. And and you say it's an unique, um, and you mentioned, you kind of said about iPads, you know, it was the iPad of its day, but why don't we see any more of them? You know, why is it the only one we found? Because you you kind of would think people would be buried with this, you know, their, their Antikythera mechanism, you know, because it's such a valuable bit of tech and it took so much engineering skill to put together but we've only ever found one yeah so it's unique to us but I think that it absolutely would not have been the only one this particular design is is very small very complex but economical in the way that gear wheels are reused sort of for different purposes um, and very confident so it must have been the result of a whole tradition of this kind of device you know we see mentions in texts talking about similar uh, mechanical models of the heavens all the way from Archimedes in the third century BC up to around the sixth century AD so I think the fact that we've got just one is really just a reminder of how little we know about what they were doing in the ancient world you know if it wasn't for this one accidental discovery from a shipwreck we would have no physical evidence of this tradition at all. Next up, our chief sub-editor, Eleanor Parsons, has been staring into the abyss. Haven't we all? <laughs> <laughs> um, in fact, she's been chatting with marine biologist Helen Scales about her new book, The Brilliant Abyss, which is all about life and ecosystems at the bottom of the ocean. And indeed, Helen actually wrote a fascinating feature for us last year about what happens when you sink a dead alligator to the bottom <laughs> of the sea, which you can read at uh, newscientist.com. Anyway, when, when Ellie caught up with her... The first thing she asked was what Helen's favourite deep sea creature is. A big favourite of mine have to be the bone-eating worms, actually. Um, Partly just because it seems so unlikely that an organism could evolve such a specialised diet in a place in the deep sea where there's not a lot of food anyway. And yet they're almost narrowing down their options by only eating the stripped back bones of of dead vertebrates, of big whales, um, whatever turtles fish whatever ends up uh, kind of lying down in the abyss and these these worms have adapted an extraordinarily specialized form of uh, colonizing those bones they look a bit more like plants than animals they've got these green roots that uh, secrete acid and let them sort of burrow into these bones and then probably uh, we think microbes that live inside them are some kind of symbiotic relationship helping them to break down the collagen which provides their food so these are animals that are just kind of so unlikely I think that's what I really love about them that they've evolved this specialized diet in a, a really difficult extreme place. I mean, that's what I liked as well, how unlikely all these things are and how different they are to what we see on the surface. Part of the problem, I guess, that you raise in your book is that these animals are all under threat. So you talk about the threat of deep sea mining in particular and the idea of green versus blue, that the discussion around mining the deep sea is often framed as this choice between greening our global economies or having a healthy ocean. But what do you think about that idea? Well, I think we've got some really difficult choices ahead of us in all sorts of ways in terms of the resources that um, people are using in all sorts of different ways. And there's no doubt at all that looking ahead to the future, if we do, and we should absolutely find ways of 
very quickly and very thoroughly bringing down our carbon emissions. I mean, that is such a big threat to all of nature and all of this living planet of ours, including, you know, the deep ocean. But in order to do that, we are going to need a lot of metals. And so this is the argument being spun, which is, well, maybe, you know, the metals that are available potentially in, in the deep seabed in various different deposits could be a source of um, these metals that we need to build, solar panels and electric cars and those sorts of things. But this argument as being put forward, especially by the people who are potentially going to directly benefit financially from this as quite a clear cut message of this is the best option we have. It's the least impactful way of getting these metals compared to really harmful mines on land. But I really don't think we're at that point as being able to make that kind of decision. We don't know exactly what the impact would be of deep sea mining, but the, the signs are pointing towards it being potentially really disastrous. You've mentioned climate change in terms of how much the deep ocean has already started absorbing this heat that um, we're releasing into the atmosphere. Are there any other impacts of climate change on the bottom of the ocean yet? Because we often hear about how it's messing with the surface ocean, with ocean acidification and warming surface temperatures. But is there more happening in the deep or are we just not looking for that? So I think we'll see more increasingly, we'll see more in the deep, the penetration of these warming seas, more acidified waters um, and lower levels of oxygen, um, as well as potentially lower amounts of food. As I say, from if, you know, if the snowfall into the deep reduces because we might see changes in that uh, in those surface waters and what's sort of been cast down into the deep could be reduced as well. So, you know, I think very much the deep is just as much in um in the firing line of climate change as anywhere else in the ocean. Is there anything that we as individuals can do to help with this? Um, what would you recommend or, or what would anyone listening to this, what, what could they do? So the deep sea, the thing about it is it's so far um, out of our daily lives, it seems, you know, it's um, someplace most of us are never going to get to see or go directly. So that connection is really difficult to make. But the deep really penetrates into all of our lives in ways that we don't you know, necessarily see. And equally, the, the actions that we take out on land and perhaps the food that we eat that comes from shallower seas still has a connection down into the deep ocean. And one thing I sort of point I try to make in the book is that I think the rest efforts that we need to make in terms of protecting the deep sea directly from these um, extractive and exploitative um, industries. But equally, what we need to do is increase the sustainability of what we're doing in the shallow oceans. Uh, and we really need to push for sustainable fishing all through the oceans, because then we wouldn't even be asking questions like, you know, can we feed the world from deep sea fish? Because we wouldn't need to, because those shallow seas will be providing us with all the seafood that um, sustainably that uh, people um, need. So making good choices about the food, if you do eat seafood, the choices that you make, even if they're not directly animals coming from the deep, there are connections to those other parts of the ocean. So look to see where your seafood comes from. Go and find things like this good seafood guide um, from the Marine Conservation uh, Society. They've got a really good piece of advice. You get the app, put it on your phone, it'll tell you which are better choices and which are not so good in terms of seafood. Equally, you know, there's obvious stuff like a lot of the pollution, a lot of the problems in the deep sea are coming from land. Plastic is getting into the deep sea. So we really need to be focusing on that. That is an issue that we're taking greater steps in, in improving our use of single use plastics. And we need to keep pushing for that and pushing for big change as well, not just as individuals, but demand better of the supermarkets, the companies who are producing these things. Any way you can make your life a little bit more sustainable is actually going to help the deep ocean. Because as I say, if we can sort ourselves out here on land in terms of the food we eat, the resources we use, then 
we can absolutely leave the deep sea alone and let all these incredible species just carry on without us interfering with them. That was our chief sub-editor, Ellie Parsons, talking with marine biologist Helen Scales about her new book, The Brilliant Abyss. You can hear more from Helen on her podcast, too, called Catch Our Drift. That's all for this week. Thanks to our guests, Michael LePage and Joe Marchant, for joining us. Uh, And just before we go, another shout out for our sister show, Escape Pod. Uh, This week, it's all about moons. Does uh, anyone have a favourite moon, Joe? Oh, for me, it has to be Saturn's moon, Enceladus. This sort of giant snowball with that mysterious ocean beneath that could harbour life. Very nice. I've got a soft spot for our own moon. Yeah, I, I, I know what you mean. People, people like our poor old inert moon. People, are, people take it for granted. Michael, uh, for me, it's got to be Europa, also because of the the possibility of an, an ocean beneath the ice. Uh, well, I'm just going to talk, say, give a shout out to Titan as well, because uh, no one's mentioned poor old Titan with his with the only moon without atmosphere. Yeah, the methane lakes and rain. It's got rain and storms, hasn't it, Titan? Yeah, it has. It has. To hear more discussion of moons, do listen to Escape Pod. And remember, as a valued listener, you can get a discount subscription to New Scientist. For 20% off, go to newscientist.com slash pod20 to subscribe. Goodbye for now and take care out there. Bye. 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 This podcast is produced by Oligiu Podcast Production. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk.